Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported show. All episodes are completely free, nearly 500 and counting. There is an official Other People app. That is free. Everything's free. You can listen online on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, you name it. You can listen via the app. It's all 100% free. So if you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this thing rolling. Okay? Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I have Todd Goldberg on the program for the second time. He was here uh, back in the day. I can't remember exactly when, but this is his second appearance. It's the first time he's ever been with me in a uh, studio. The first time we spoke, he was in Palm Springs, I believe, and we were uh, talking over the transom. But he uh, drove into town, came over, sat down with me. We had a great conversation that I'm very excited to share with you. He's got a new novel out from Counterpoint Press. It's called Gangster Nation. Uh, Mr. Goldberg writes crime fiction. He's a New York Times bestselling novelist of uh, several books, the latest Gangster Nation out there now from Counterpoint. So you're going to hear he and I talk about, uh, you know, the, the what's the best way to put this? We're going to talk about crime fiction. We're going to talk about crime. We're going to talk about, you know, criminal nature in human beings. We're going to talk about the uh, strange way that the title Gangster Nation feels germane to the world we live in now, and, and in particular, the country we live in now, where it seems like there's this really explicit gangsterish criminality running amok. Or, or maybe that's just me and Todd. So what else is going on? I don't know. You know, not a whole hell of a lot. There's, a, you know, I have this very regimented life. It can sometimes feel like which I've talked about. And, you know, I think a lot of it is born of necessity. A lot of it is just a, you know, a natural outgrowth of the particular phase of life that I'm in and the choices that I've made, you know, when you're in your forties and you've got two kids, kids are young, especially takes up a lot of your time. You've got a day job, nine to five, 
that takes up a lot of your time. What I'm getting at is that I don't feel like I'm necessarily as social as I once was. I feel like a lot of the times, uh, a lot of the time I'm unable to, uh, make plans socially because uh, someone's like, Hey, do you want to go get a drink on Wednesday or get dinner? And I'm like, you know, yeah, that sounds good, but I'm going to be exhausted. I don't want to be out until 11. I want to go to bed. <laughs> and so I worry about that part of my life atrophying. If that makes sense. But then, and I, and I also worry like, am I not available enough? Am I being a bad human being? Am I closing in? Am I turning inward to a degree that might be unhealthy or potentially damaging to friendships? It's hard to balance it all. And then I, then I, uh, sort of comfort myself by saying, listen, you know, it's just a phase. Got to go through this. And it's like all this self-care, you know, all this exercise, all this meditation, all this stuff that I kind of do to oxygenate. Is that just like some kind of self-indulgent bullshit? My selfish human being? Or is that actually a good move? I want to say I was reading something about like Mother Teresa's like, you know, nuns or whatever. They would like pray for like six hours before they went out and uh, like tended to the, uh, the lepers in the street or whatever. That makes sense to me. <laughs> like if you're going to do that sort of hardcore stuff, you need to oxygenate for six hours. Like the Dalai Lama, he gets up at like 3.30 in the morning. He's got to like hang out by himself for like four hours before he can go like, you know, out into the public be all cheerful all day long. It makes sense to me. This is how I rationalize it. This is how I rationalize my inward turn and my like, uh, you know, dire lack of social life. I don't know how else to do it. And then I'm also concerned about like the pace of life, this feeling of always being rushed, this feeling of always, I mean, I, I this is like the, I feel like I, I'd never stop talking about this, but I worry about that. Doesn't it, shouldn't life be slower? Even just in the morning. Can I just ease into my day? Can I just like, don't ask anything of me before 11 AM. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> Everybody could just clear out for the first seven hours of the day. I'd be fine. I'll get up at four from 4 AM to 11. Don't speak to me. I have needs apparently. So, and Todd Goldberg and I, I don't think we discuss any of this. I think we might've talked about a little bit of it because I talk about this with everybody, which, you know, should make you very eager to talk to me. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a laugh riot. It's so enjoyable talking to somebody about this sort of stuff constantly. Uh, but no, I think Todd and I discussed it a little bit, but then we got into our conversation and I, I got to say, I feel like we had one of the better conversations that I've had in recent memory on this program, off this program, etc. I enjoyed this and I found, uh, Todd really enlightening on, uh, the state of our country and our world and just unusually well-informed and articulate and on. So I'm very, very excited to share this conversation with you. This is Todd Goldberg. His new novel, one more time, is called Gangster Nation. Well, I, I got involved in a, a weird thing. So I was, 
I was on this message board on Facebook that was run by the local newspaper, and I would argue politics like the last nine months with uh, a variety of people. And then they shut the board down. Uh, the Desert Sun, the local newspaper, did because people were just you know being horrible and whatnot. But a couple months ago, in in February, actually, a woman had um, replied to something that I had said with a picture of Hitler, and you know I was stunned. Um, but this is a person who. I had argued with about a variety of different things over the course of, you know, nine months. But then she just sent me this picture of Hitler and then blocked me. And so I had, I had taken a picture of this comment and other people had seen it because this was a big local um, forum hosted by the newspaper where people would talk politics. And so for like six or nine months or so, you know, since February... People would say, did someone send you a picture of Hitler on the local newspaper board? And I would say, yeah, I took a picture of it because the fact was I had taken a picture of it because I didn't want my wife, Wendy, to run into it and be like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, why are you arguing with people who are sending you pictures of Hitler? But this last week, um, folks asked me about it locally because the the woman in question um, was hosting a fundraiser for two local city council candidates. And You're be kidding me. No. So this is a neighbor. I mean, this is like a, a, a yeah, woman who lives in your community. A, a woman who lives in my community. Um, and so I said again, yeah, I confirmed that it happened. I always told people that it had happened. And then two days later, it ended up on the front page of the local newspaper. The result of which, of course, was, you know, unpleasant for everybody, unpleasant for me, unpleasant for the woman who had sent me the photo, unpleasant for the city council candidates. Um, but I'll tell you the interesting thing that happened is the uh, the woman sent me, um, you know, a pretty profound uh, apology and I accepted it and um, forgave her for it. And the whole process, I think, has been a question locally um, that I think we were dealing with nationally. It's about sort of the normalization of this kind of discussion, this kind of, you know, argument tactic of saying, oh, I'm going to show you a picture of Hitler when I don't agree with you. Right. Um, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a public figure. Um, and so I expect some level of getting weird mail. But this had been a thing that had stuck with me and it had bothered me. I mean, she she wasn't the first person or the last person, um, I'm sad to say, to send me a picture of Hitler in my life. Um, but, you know, the the apology um, was a, a profound thing from her. Um, you know, I know that she, she had made a mistake and she regretted it and regretted that it ended up on the front page of the newspaper. And forgiving her, for me, was easy. Um, because, you know, I'm not anywhere near a perfect human being, and, and God knows I've made plenty of mistakes in my life. But this opportunity also to to be able to tell people, look, the reason this isn't funny or the reason this isn't um, a good thing is because that image um, and this kind, of, um, this kind of discourse, it's not just hurtful to me. It's not just hurtful to my family or my mother-in-law who picked up the newspaper and saw this on the front page. I think it's hurtful to the fabric of the human existence. Yeah, um, and so it's been sort of a um, a challenging and interesting week. Um, and I'm going to meet with this woman. I've never met her in person. Um, and uh, after I get off the road, I'm going to when I'm back home, um, and I'm going to stand. We're going to we're going to talk. And I'm I'm actually sort of looking forward to 
an opportunity to meet with this this person in person and um and just kind of talk about how people with differing views can still treat each other with some respect um and and be open to uh, learning. I mean, this is this is a person who's a you know she's a Trump supporter and um, a conservative Christian and all of these things. Um, and I am the opposite of all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know what, man? I just I, I feel like we're in not normal times, and so I'm I'm always going to stand up and say the things I don't agree with because I feel like the tiny platform that I have. I'm going to use it to um, to hopefully foster a little bit of good. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so, and I, I, I applaud you. Not everybody would be so forgiving uh, over something like that. No, but, I don't think my wife was. <laughs> <laughs> wife's ready to cut a bitch. But, you know, it's... Uh, it, it, like it, it brings to mind the title of your book. Mm -hmm. Like in a weird way, it speaks to this cultural moment. Yeah, it does. You know, Gangster Nation. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, is that what that kind of feels uh, descriptive to me? And uh, the permission structure that Trump has created, where, especially online, you know, because mm -hmm. that's where he does a lot of his uh, worst work, in my opinion, right. you know, where he kind of goes out and he stokes the base and, um, you know, pokes his opponents and tries to sort of be outrageous a lot of times, I think strategically to distract from oh, un for un sure. unbecoming news stories and so for on and sure. so forth. But, um, but the, and the thing is we're dupes. Well, not, not us, not you and me, obviously clearly we're not, dupes. No. <laughs> but the American public gets played for a dupe over and over and over again because they take the bait. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I just wrote a piece about this for the Los Angeles times, um, uh, about the way that, as a nation, we have decided we want to be the gangster and not the hero. Um, and we're, we're guided in many ways by a, a president who feels he can get away with anything, you know, who has a, a bunch of uh, hapless henchmen who, in fact, end up being loose lip snitches. <laughs> yeah. But that's the way it goes in gangster. That's the way it goes in gangster. Yeah. But it's as if um, it's as if no one has ever watched the second half of any gangster movie. They only watch the first half where everyone's making money and everyone's getting away with it. The problem with getting away with it is that people see you getting away with it. And eventually that flips. Um, and, 
you know, it, I, I think the thing that happened to me, and like I said, it happened a couple months ago, it just came to more, a more public light recently, is endemic of of people feeling like they're free to to say anything. Um, you know what? You you had my friend Matthew Zapriter on um, not long ago. And right around the election time, he said something really smart, which was that, you know, a crack opened up and flooding out of it was every single person's darkness. And that has always stayed with me, that once people saw that crack open, they just felt like, I'm going to let it all out. Yeah. What's the... Especially uh, on Twitter. Uh, Particularly on Twitter. Particularly. Because that's the thing that, like, when we talk about this episode with this woman who posted a, a picture of Hitler on, what is it, a Facebook chat? Yeah. I, you know, I feel like social media in particular makes people feel at liberty to show the worst of themselves with impunity. Uh, that, you know, you're doing it from a distance. Mm-hmm. It's not something that someone's likely to do to your face. Right. You know, there's that kind of safety, that it, right. a sense of safety, I guess, that it creates. Uh, but it's also something that I've been thinking about a lot because I've been guilty of this, where... I can get so upset by what's going on, justifiably, mm-hmm. you know, in my opinion. Like, but wow, when uh, Trump is saying that, you know, the KKK and, you know, white nationalists in Charlottesville, there's some decent people involved, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, it's easy to, to feel like very right, self-righteous right. or righteous about um, your opinions and your feelings about that. But if you, when you say take the bait, if you respond to uh, hate with hate... <laughs> With, you know, darkness, anger, it's just going to perpetuate the cycle. It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. So that's why I especially applaud you for saying, I accept your apology. Let's meet. Let's have a conversation. Mm -hmm. Because unless we get to that place, unless people en masse get to that place, then I think we're in for a bumpy ride. Well, for sure. And I have to tell you, this is actually the second strange experience I've had with um, sort of white supremacy or conspiracy theories on the Internet recently that became a thing, which is that. So I live uh, in the Palm Springs area. I actually live in the city of Indio. Um, So if you've ever gone to Coachella, I'm the guy who when you're driving by with your angel wings, I'm like, you know what? Why don't you go back to L.A. with those angel wings? You know, I'm trying to live my life here. Get out of my Trader Joe's. This is the thing about Coachella, incidentally. For the locals, like, yeah, we go sometimes. Or we went to, like, my wife and I went to Desert Trip. I'd go to Stagecoach, but the sounds of the word yeehaw are sort of like anti-Jew. Um, but the thing that's most upsetting about Coachella is not about the crowds or anything. It's about the line at Trader Joe's. Like, that's the thing that makes me crazy. He's like, get out of my line. <laughs> At any rate, um, this was this was a, um, earlier in the summer, just you know, two months ago or so. The mayor pro tem of the city that I live in, after the Charlottesville incident, was posting on his Twitter account um, all these conspiracy theories, all these conspiracy theory flyers that, in fact, now follow me on this, that the anti-fascists were there because they were anti-Jewish. And it was this strange, like, conspiracy theory where the fascists were actually anti-Semites. The anti-fascists were actually anti-Semites. It was a whole confusing thing. So at any rate, I followed this guy on Twitter, and I saw him saying all this crazy stuff. And then eventually he said, you know, it's not the white supremacists that are the problem that, you know, that, killed this poor girl um it's the media and the liberals are the real problem 
And I decided at that point, well, this gentleman wants a bigger platform for his views. I'm going to give it to him. And then a week later, he was on the local news explaining how he's not a racist. <laughs> so wait, how did, how did I give, what, what happened in between? Um, I, would ask, I asked him a bunch of questions on the Internet. And he would just get angrier and angrier and angrier. And people saw me talking to him on, on Twitter and also on Facebook and asking him questions about how exactly the liberals and the media had killed this woman in Charlottesville. Um, and he just began to disassemble. And then people began to notice and people began to talk to him, too. And eventually the local news picked up on it about here's the mayor pro tem of the city of India, which is the city of festivals, which is the city that hosts Coachella. And he's, you know, putting out all of these aberrant views into the world about how the liberals and the media are the problem with the world, which and, you know, one of my other questions for him was, so when all the liberals and the media come here for Coachella, are you going to block them at the city gates? Is that what's going to happen? And um, I was, you know, he was, he represents me. I had voted for the guy because, you know, city council, you're just like, yeah, right, you know, Jones, Wilson, done. Yeah. yeah. Um, but now I'm a bit better informed, <laughs> thank God. Um, well, no, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of good work, like locally, which is maybe the way to go instead of trying to like fight battle. I mean, you can do a little bit of both, mm -hmm. but it's great to be paying attention to your specific community yeah. and to be trying as much as possible to, um, you know, speak up when needed in a way that is constructive as much as possible. And then the other thing I would say, um, and this too has been on my mind lately with respect to social media in mm -hmm. particular, is that I think the reality of the circumstances that we're living in right now, or at least part of the reality, is that we are in an, in an information war. Right. And that's not an overstatement to me. No, I agree. I, I, think, agree I, think, I think Russia uh, was successful in 16 at disseminating misinformation or DESA or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it that confused people or inflamed people's prejudices and influenced the way that they voted and influenced the way that they perceived the candidates. Mm -hmm. It was a successful campaign on yeah, their part. Absolutely. And I, and I think that some of those tactics, um, you know, one way or the other are being employed by certain um, parts of our media, you know, where people are just spouting hateful stuff or just complete backwards bullsh bullshit. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk to people who are like, you know what, I'm tuning it out, or you know what, I'm not going to be on social, I'm like, you know what, I, I'm sort of a... Like, and I went through a phase where I tuned out of social right mm -hmm. after the election, where I think I just needed a detox. Yeah. But I came back, and I've now come almost like a full 180, where I'm like, you know what, I, f I think it's actually good to be uh, retweeting truths mm -hmm. and to be using your little mini megaphone to try to battle back. Like, w w how else are you going to win an information war? Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, more and more lately, I mean, I, I write these books about a guy who's pretending to be a Jew, you know, a, a Chicago hitman who pretends to be a rabbi in Las Vegas. You know, this is this is a beach that I've put myself on. Um <laughs> But it's had the effect of, for the first time in my life, making me feel pretty Jewish. Um, this, because, this presidency. Yeah, particularly this presidency. I mean, it, it's hard to see swastikas places and not start to feel pretty Jewish. Yeah. Um, not be aware of your own culture. But the larger thing for me and the reason I'm speaking out um, and the reason that I'm engaging folks is a, a fairly simple one, which is that... You know, my 
family was chased out of Ukraine in 1919, and they ended up in Walla Walla, Washington, of all places. And they built a life because they didn't have any other choice. And they built a great life that allows me to write books and to um, to teach, to be a, a professor. All it, you know, my my grandfather and my or my my grandparents, my great grandparents struggled and left where they lived to come here so that I could have the life that I have. And I will be damned if I'm going to besmirch that. Like, this is the thing that they fought to have. This is the thing they had to escape death for. And that means something more to me today than it ever has because the risks seem realer to yeah. me now. Yeah, well, and the other thing, too, is that, like, you know, you have to honor their sacrifice right. because not only are you sacrificing comfort, you're leaving home, everything right. you know, going into a completely new country and culture, but in order to assimilate and in order to make it and get yourself to a space where you can actually uh, survive and then create an opportunity for your children and grandchildren mm -hmm. to thrive, you might have to, uh, in a lot of significant ways, sacrifice your own existence. Yeah. I, you know, I had a, a really profound experience, too. And I, I know folks are like, I, I usually when I hear Todd on these shows, he's funnier than this. But I'm sure I'm, I'll tell some jokes <laughs> we, in a we minute. We did funny Todd in the first appearance. <laughs> this is dark Todd. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. Um, a little while after the election. Um, actually, coincidentally, the whole thing where the woman sent me the photo of Hitler on Facebook happened when I was on this particular trip to Washington, D.C., but at any rate, I um, I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. and I was walking around. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been. It's it's a four hour experience because you start at the top level and you work your way down, and it's the entire, essentially the entire experience of the Holocaust as you roll through it. Um, but there's a uh, a glassed in bridge between floors that has the names of all of the cities where uh, the Nazis had killed all the Jews. And my middle name is uh, Bear, B-A-R-E-R. -E and my whole family, and that's my family's name. So my grandparents on my mom's side, their last name was Bear. But they were all from Bar, Ukraine. Um, so it's a name that's derived from the city, um, B-A-R. And I walked through this room, and I wasn't even really paying attention. I was already, you know, crying. You know, <laughs> you don't go to the Holocaust Museum incidentally and feel like at the end, you know what, that was that was pretty great. Let's get lunch. Yeah, let's. Uh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna get a churro. Like you, it's like you you leave that. And you're like, I need to go by the Talmud. Um, but I was walking through this Glaston um, bridge, and I turned and I looked, and and there, just above the handrail, was the word bar, and it was sort of the first time in my life that I recognized. That you know that that very sheer connection that that is my name, and that in this place that is my name, they killed them all. Yeah, um, and you know I just I feel like that's a um, it's a significant thing as as an artist. I mean, I'm you know I write crime novels, um, but you know I still feel like I'm connected to a larger um, world of creating art. And 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 to see just in a font face, your entire history could have 
been gone, you know, right there in that little ambridge. It meant something, you know, and it continues to mean something to me. Okay, so uh, you talk about uh, your Jewishness or your sense of your own Jewishness and how it's uh, intensified with the, uh, um, you know, with the Trump presidency mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Like, where were you before? Like, were you somebody who practices? No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a mayonnaise on a corned beef sandwich Jew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Beastie Boy Neil Diamond okay. Jew. Um, you know, I, I'm a Bacon Jew. Um, but you know, when I so when I wrote uh, Gangster Land, um, which was the first book in um, what I'm viewing really as a as a trilogy at this point, um, it could be a quartet. I might add a dragon. It could be five. You never know. I mean, I, I, the thing is, uh, I keep thinking, I keep saying this to my my lovely, long suffering wife Wendy, is that. We got very lucky, and some very nice people want to make um, these books into a, a TV show. And who's doing it? Uh, the folks behind the TV show Peaky Blinders oh, on cool. uh, BBC and Netflix. Um, they own it now, which is which is wonderful. Um, but you know, we were watching Game of Thrones. I'm like, you know what? I could probably add a dragon into, <laughs> into book six of this. Why not? <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> who's going to stop me? So, you know, my, my Judaism um, really sort of became more profound when I was writing Gangsterland because I was at a strange point in my life. My parents were both dead, um, and I realized this. I was, you know, I was 42 years old at the time, something like that. And I realized that I was at the top of the family tree for the first time. I mean, I have older siblings, but, you know, you get the, you get the metaphor. <laughs> um, and, you know, you start to reckon with what that means at a certain point. And in order to write about a fake rabbi, I wanted to know what he would know. So I started to read all the books that uh, Sal Cupertine would read to become the Rabbi David Cohen. And while it didn't necessarily affect my views on organized religion, which are dim, um, it did affect my views on spirituality and in philosophy and Jewish thought. And of course, when you read the Talmud, um, it's hard not to be moved by the fact that your petty existential concerns were the same petty existential concerns that people had 10,000 years ago or whatever. Even with all these like layers of technology and modernity, like it's all the same shit for human beings. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's basically boils down to, you know, why am I here and what happens next <laughs> at all times? That's it. That's it. That's it. Why am I here and is there a life after this death? Uh, well, I want to ask, I'm going to ask one more Judaism question, then we can like go on to, uh, you know, uh, the more fun world of, uh, fantasy baseball, fantasy baseball and, <laughs> and gangland ethics or whatever. But, um, like one of the confusing things about this moment in our history, uh, here in America and you know, how toxic things have gotten is that you do see, uh, among other things, you know, you have uh, racism, mm-hmm. emergent white nationalism, you have anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and you have Trump seeming to stoke all of this or at least be indifferent to, you know, its rise or whatever right. it is. And yet his son-in-law is Jewish. Right. His daughter married into the religion. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you make sense of that? Like, it's almost like the, the guy's just like an empty vessel. Like, how is he computing all of this? How are they compute? How are uh, Jared and Ivanka computing all of this? Well, I don't actually believe Trump believes in anything. Um, I, I, I believe he's an opportunist and he does whatever he thinks will make him money. 
<laughs> you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I have to tell you, I had a conversation with my um, my uncle right after the election. And my uncle is a, a fairly um, involved Democratic supporter, a big um, a big funder of the Democratic Party. And um, he's really actually um, been influential in me getting more involved with politics and actually being able to pick up a phone and talk to my congressman um, to use my, um, like I said, my, my small platform to make bigger change and to actually be able to say, Hey, look, this is, this is who I am. I need to talk to you. And I speak for people who will never pick up the phone and do this. Um, but he said something very wise, which was that at some point, someone is going to have to teach this elephant not to shit in the house (laughs) because the elephant is going to realize that he can't live in a house filled with elephant shit, and he's going to go outside to take a shit. <laughs> and, and the elephant meaning Trump, yeah. And I, you know, that seemed very wise, but in fact, it seems like this particular elephant doesn't either have eyes or olfactory senses because <laughs> his house is filled with shit. Um, so I believe Trump is an opportunist, but I, I. I you know, for I, I can't imagine um, the dynamics in his own family, and I can't imagine the dynamics between Jared Kushner and um, and his wife. Um, but you know, there are conservative Jews. Not that I actually believe Jared Kushner is one. Um, I, they were I be- all Democrats. Like they're they, all Democrats. Yeah. I, I believe they are corrupt, um, and that, and corruption knows no religious faith um, or party affiliation. Or, or party affiliation. They're, they're corrupt. When when these sort of profound racist events occur or these profound anti-Semitic events occur, their silence makes me do the same thing over every single time, which is their silence makes me scream at the television, they're the Uncle Tom of the Jews, <laughs> which is a line from Quiz Show, actually, um, one of my favorite movies. and That's a Robert Redford movie. Yeah, a Robert Redford movie about the Quiz Show scandal. And... You know, I, 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 you know, I hold these the Jews in office to a different standard because I feel like you share my history of oppression, and yet you go out there and you do these things. I, I was talking to a friend of mine; he's a, Jew, a Jewish mm-hmm. guy, and, and he was saying that Jared pisses him off the most. Yes, he does for me totally. Well, actually, no, Mnuchin and Cohn <laughs> piss me off the most. Jared. I have no idea. You know that I, I feel like um, in all cases here, these are people who have gotten away with it for so long and they feel like the rules don't apply to them. And that's that sort of gangster ethos that you can do things out in public and get away with it because you're, you view yourself to be untouchable and maybe in public life you can be untouchable, but you can't be untouchable in a system of checks and balances because at some point, Someone's going to try to find the balance. Yeah. So it's it's such an it's such a funny thing to realize that Todd Goldberg, writer of crime novels, um, who rules over an academic fiefdom in the desert. <laughs> I do. I have my own graduate school. That's correct. <laughs> um, that you, I think, would be uniquely well positioned to speak to this political moment because you live, at least imaginatively, in the world of gangsters and in the world mm-hmm. of 
uh, people with, uh, you know, double identities and right. uh, who lie, <laughs> you know, so you've, you've spent a lot of time in this world and you've spent a lot of time in, you know, inhabiting mm-hmm. these people. So to hear you talk so lucidly and you're Jewish and, you know, so there's a lot of things that go into it, but who better, <laughs> honestly, who better to speak to this moment than a crime novelist? <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing is, um, I, and a lot of my friends are crime novelists as well. And of course, my brother Lee is is also a crime novelist. So when we're talking on the phone, we have these discussions too, or when we see each other, is that these are the worst criminals ever. You mean <laughs> inept? Inept. Yeah. Yeah. And the the worst spies ever. I, I mean, I wrote five books about um, uh, a spy. And these people, their spycraft is so terrible. I just think, oh, my God, you know, come on, man, read a book or something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think the um, the essence of, of all of this is that people believe they can get away with it because of the media that they've consumed where people get away with it. The problem is media is not real life. And we have a president who did reality TV and thought it was real. It's not. Um, and so there's, I think there's something to all of this, but I, I think the, the organized crime mafia ethos, uh, this romantic notion of what it means to be a boss, you know, all of it's crap. (laughs) And I, you know, I satirize a lot of it in, in my books because it's, it's a notion based also on, racial injustice as well. We we glamorize, we've always glamorized Italian gangsters, the mafia, Costa Nostra, all that stuff. There is a museum in Las Vegas where I'll be speaking shortly, actually, dedicated to the mafia. What there's not is a museum in South Central Los Angeles dedicated to the Crips or the Bloods. There's not um, a... That's a good point. Yeah, there's, there's not a museum dedicated to the Mexican mafia. Actually, I guess, so this is a crazy thing. So where I live in the Coachella Valley, um, I live, so I I said I live in Indio, but I also live about a mile from basically the hub of the Mexican mafia. So I live in a big gated community on a golf course because I just realized at some point, well, I'm going to be an old Jew. I might as well, you know, (laughs) might as well just go ahead and get that house on the golf course. Um, and I should note, I can't play golf. Um, because I am an old Jew, which you know, which means I've never been athletic a day in my life. <laughs> but so there's this hub of the Mexican mafia one mile away from where I live, and this was a couple of years ago. So there's one, there, like the, there's Mexican mafia outposts in California. Oh, all over the place. Yeah. yeah, and in the Coachella Valley specifically, there's a bunch of um, Mexican gangs um, because it's it, it's a central location for the movement of drugs from Mexico. Gotcha. So you can, it's pretty easy to bring them up there on Interstate 10, dump them off in the Coachella Valley, spread it out to San Diego, to LA, to, to Arizona, um, to the tribal uh, lands, all that stuff. Um, so a couple of years ago, they decided they needed to go in there and get a lot of these guys out. And so they dropped a thousand, I think it was law enforcement, FBI, DEA, ATF agents at this beautiful tennis garden where they host this huge, um, you know, 
the the Indian Wells tennis tournament, which is a giant, you know, like U.S. Open style tennis tournament. They massed all these agents there, and from there, they swept into the Mexican mafia stronghold and arrested like four hundred guys. And so I was out of town on that day, and my wife called me, and she's like, "There's like fifteen helicopters <laughs> hovering above." where we live and I'm hearing a bunch of sirens and I don't know what's going on. And I, you know, I looked on the news and it turns out, Oh yeah, they're assaulting the Mexican mafia stronghold. That's one street off of where we live. I I was never scared of them. Um, because the fact of the matter is they respect the land that they're on right there. They only, they don't, they don't mess with any of the locals because right in between all of this is a, uh, a super target. And we all got to use the super target. And so you go into the super target on a Friday night and it was just all country club families and Mexican gangsters. (laughs) (laughs) Just shopping peacefully. Just shopping peacefully. (laughs) And that super target was never tagged up. It was never robbed. Nothing bad ever happened because it was a sanctuary space. They aren't going to mess with the super target because that's where they get their wool light and their toothpaste and their itch cream too. Right. Um, And so that sort of, thing about you know where they're where willing where people are willing to do crime how out front about who they are as gangsters all that stuff that really living around it really influences the way i think about society but also about writing crime novels which is you know i live in in a gated community one mile away from some of the biggest gangsters in the country that's, it, looks, it sounds like a, kind of like a perfect place for a crime it's novelist perfect. to be living. Yeah, And uh, hopefully they don't come for me now that I've added them, <laughs> if they're listening to other people. <laughs> okay. So then this begs the question, for somebody who has written crime novels, who has gone through the process of inhabiting uh, this psychology, like, like you look to the Trump presidency where we're seeing kind of a gangster novel play out, mm-hmm. how does it end? Well, here's the thing. Whenever anything bad happens... You see people saying, oh, Donald Trump Jr., he's Fredo. Or, you know, Tom Price, he's Fredo. Or, this person's <laughs> Fredo. In order to for that to matter, there'd have to be a Michael. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but this is an administration of Fredos. Yes. It's like lots of Fredos. <laughs> it's, it's a thousand Fredos and no Michael. Um, I don't know how it plays out. Uh, other than as a as a writer of crime fiction... It's hard to think of things that are more outlandish than the things that we're seeing in front of us every single day. And I think actually this plays a role in um, in the consumption of media, be it books or movies or television or whatever, which, you know, do you want to spend 20 bucks to go to the movies one night when you could just stay home and watch Three Days of the Condor? Um, unfold on msnbc in real time yeah you know like that's the thing for for all of the trauma that it is causing our country in this world it is uh, an incredible narrative an incredible narrative and with with like elmore leonard-esque crap crap characters that roll in like the like the music promoter guy that ended up being in the Russian meeting with Scaramucci. Scaramucci. I was just saying the other day, remember we had that guy Scaramucci? What happened to that guy? That was a 10 day experience. It was a 10 day experience. And man, I loved tweeting at him. (laughs) (laughs) And like, you know, and like what's weird too, is that like they're corrupt. They're out in the open. 
then they have this like weird sense of humor about themselves yeah. and then he's on the talk show circuit and it starts to make me feel a little skeevy it's like we got to mm -hmm. be careful how we, we got to be careful about normalizing this right we 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 absolutely do because it's not normal um and you know i know a lot of people who work in politics and and they don't find it amusing they find it horrifying right because they see how these tendrils reach into the mundane apparatus of government and how insidious it can be. And I, I think that's why we have to constantly be watching it. And I think actually the American people, um, because of the amazing journalism that has happened in the last um, nine months. And, you know, I want to stop you. Like, Hats off! Oh my like, god! It, like for, especially from a president and a, an administration that and, and an, an a media apparatus on the right that loves to uh, flagellate the profession. Mm -hmm. Like thank God for really serious, oh. good, hardworking journalists because uh, without them, it, they wouldn't root out the corruption. We'd never see it. Yeah, you know, it, I come from a family of journalists. My mom was a journalist. My dad was a, a TV news journalist. So my respect for journalism is is over the moon. Um, and, you know, when I see these hardworking journalists beating down the doors for these stories, I just think, man, when they saw Trump get elected, they were like a dog with a bone. And you know what? They're going to get that bone. They're going to break it in half and they're going to lick the marrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> what do you call those? Those big like, you give them to dogs. Trying to think of what the there's like a name for a specific bone. It's like a really good one, but anyway, it's a delicious bone. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fucked up. I, I I always ask myself like, where does this? When is this going to end? We have like another couple of months before finally they bring him down. Do you have a lot of faith in Mueller? Like he's the he's the white knight of the story. Is he yeah. gonna, is he going to come through? I have no idea, but I have faith that people don't want to go to prison for Donald Trump. You know. Um, Rance Priebus doesn't want to go to prison for Donald Trump. Well, and the other thing, too, and uh, Rachel Maddow has been pointing this out. You know, there's all these inauguration funds, mm. which legally he can do whatever he wants right. with. He collected over $100 million on his inauguration. Uh, they, there's really no tabs on where this money is. No. And on top of that, I want to say that, like, his reelect fund is being used to pay off his family's legal fees. And oh, he's, but, but no, but here, <laughs> the, to get back to your point, right. he's not paying the legal fees of Reince Priebus right. or Sean Spicer right. or Hope Hicks or all of these people, all the Fredos. Right. Like that's very Trumpian. Yeah. Like, go fuck yourself. Pay it yourself. Yeah. These, these people are not, mil, you know, millionaires no. like he is or whatever. So these are, these are people that had government jobs are paying them uh, $150,000 a year. And then suddenly they have, you know, $3 million in legal fees. I have, yeah. I find it hard to believe that if Mueller and his team put the screws to these people, that they're not going to be like, yep, it was him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing is that you have to ask yourself. I mean, th this, is, this is why it's not the mafia. Donald Trump isn't going to kill Sean Spicer for talking. <laughs> He's not going to order a hit on him. He's not going to have SEAL Team 6 show up in Sean Spicer's living room and be like, you've been eradicated. That's not going to happen. That's the difference is that a mob boss might actually make good on on the empty threats that they make. Um, and not not to say Trump hasn't made good on, on threats because he has been so damaging to um, the social fiber of the people he views to be the weakest. Um, I, was at, I was at this meeting actually not long ago 
um, with my local congressman and a, a bunch of religious leaders. Now, imagine that, by the way, me in a meeting <laughs> with my local congressman and a bunch of religious leaders. But there you go. Um, where we were talking about, you know, what comes next? You know, what, what's the next thing that could happen socially? Um, and part of the reason they were there, I think, that I was there was was to talk not just about, um, you know, philosophical things, but that, you know, I sort of have a predictive mind about about crime. You know, like I, I, I think more often like a criminal than like a good guy. And I see things that can be exploited. And so at, at one point in this meeting, um, my congressman says, well, Todd, what do, what do you think, you know, about what's going on in the world? And I said, well, you know, what's going on in the world? This is after Charlottesville. I said, the next time there's something like this, they're just going to show up with guns and they're just going to start shooting. Who's they? The white supremacists. Yeah. Um, because they view they view um, immigrants um, or they view atheists as a weaker part of the human race that needs to be eradicated. And they might first march, they might drive a car into a group of people, but at some point, this well-armed lunatic fringe is just going to start shooting people. And <laughs> the room of religious leaders were looking at me like, who is this guy and why is he here? And I just I've said, come look, to speak the truth. I said, look, you, it's, it's time to be predictive and not reactive. You know, having a meeting in a park to talk about love and hope and all those things is wonderful. Um, having a, a unifying statement of our values is great. But the fact of the matter is the people who want to step on the weakest links that they view in society don't care if we believe in hope and love. Right. And, you know, these, I mean, these are the things that make me take only half of an Ambien at night. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a half of an Ambien yeah, guy, too. Yeah, half is good. Just knock me out. Just, like, get me over the edge into right. sleep. And yeah. then I'm good. I don't want to be up at 4 o'clock in the morning wearing my wife's clothes and, and <laughs> you know, with my hand in a jar of mayonnaise and eating it. <laughs> oh, man. Can I tell you a brief Ambien story? Yeah, please. <laughs> so <laughs> this was a few years ago. Uh, actually, this is when my wife and I were both in graduate school. So we were flying um, back and forth from Palm Springs to uh, Bennington, Vermont, where I'd gone to graduate school. And we took a flight from uh, Palm Springs that had a layover in Chicago and then dropped us off in Albany, New York. And then we had to take a bus. So anyway, um, about a week after our flight, I got an email from United Airlines that said, Due to the terrible events which occurred on your flight um, and the preceding layover in Chicago, we are offering you either 15,000 miles or um, $250. I was like, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember anything that happened. And so I said to Wendy, what, was there something that happened on that flight? And she's like, well, remember it was the red eye. So we we took an ambient in Palm Springs and then we changed planes in Chicago and got on the other flight. I was like, don't really remember changing planes in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Just a complete wash. And I, I, I have a friend who was a, um, a flight attendant and I said, in what situation without me complaining, would United airlines offer me either money or miles? And she was like, it would be pretty bad without you complaining. <laughs> and I was like, eh, no idea. <laughs> None. So there's no answer. No answer. No one knows. Um, 
But on the same flight, apparently we ran into an old friend at the airport. My wife was sleeping <laughs> in, the, in the waiting area in Chicago, and I ran into an old friend. And apparently I was in search of a hamburger, except it was 6 o'clock in the morning in Chicago. And my <laughs> you old, get a hamburger at 6 o'clock in the morning think. in Chicago. And my friend uh, emailed us later and was like, oh, it's so great to see you. So weird that you're looking for a hamburger. And I was like, I don't have any idea what she's talking about. <laughs> Now, if I have a friend who, uh, and I think I've t- I might have told this story on this show at some point, but uh, his wife had like a business meeting on a Monday morning early, and she wanted to make sure she slept, mm-hmm. and she had had like a couple of glasses of wine, right. and when you mix alcohol with ambient, that's when things really can that's go. That's when you're Tiger Woods. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And so uh, she's like, I'm going to go to bed, and he's like staying up to watch the game or whatever, mm-hmm. and he at about 10 o'clock goes back to their room, and she's not there. Oh, God. And he, you know, walks around the house and finds her in the nursery with their kid. She's, but like, there's like a crib. And then I think there's like a bed with stuffed animal. The baby's in the crib. Then there's like a bed in the room and there's stuffed animals all over it. And she's just like sitting there, like cross-legged on the bed, talking to the stuffed animals. Oh, good Lord. Like one of those, you know, and he was That's like, not good. and he, and like, it took him a minute to put it right. together. And like, he was like, he took a video or taped it on his right. phone and was like, what? And you know, my wife lost it. Right. <laughs> That's bad. So. <laughs> But whenever you hear about somebody like uh, like Lara Flynn Boyle, I don't even know why I remember this, like flashing somebody on an airplane, or the dude from REM who freak, you know, freaked out on the airplane. I, I don't know these stories. Maybe I read it when I was taking ambience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but every once in a while, something will appear in the news where it's like, some celebrity flashed uh, passengers in first class, and I'm always like, ambient and alcohol. <laughs> every time. You know, something weird also happened once. This is why I only take half now if I need... if I can't sleep is a friend of mine had sent me some uh, pages to read and wanted my opinion on them. And then I saw her a couple days after she'd sent the pages and I hadn't read them yet. And she said, uh, Hey, uh, thanks for the notes. I was like, I, I haven't read your piece yet. And she's like, Oh, you haven't, um, you know, you sent me, um, some pretty hard notes on my work. And I was like, when did I do that? I said, she said like two days ago, three o'clock in the morning. I was like, Huh. <laughs> and, and then I so I looked at my email and I was, oh, and sure enough I had read my friend's stuff and sent her um notes on it that were fairly direct. <laughs> <laughs> but also brilliant. Uh, but clearly brilliant. And but then I, I was like, Well God, I, I don't remember waking up and reading her essay and sending her my my thoughts on it. But then I got extraordinarily worried and was like, Oh God, I gotta see if I've sent any more emails. So now <laughs> if I ever take an ambient before I go to sleep, I all technology is out of the room. <laughs> word, to, word to the wise for those of you listening. Oh God. So, so let's talk about uh like your interest in crime. Mm-hmm. I think I think we touched about this when you appeared on the show the first time, but I, you know, if so I want to revisit because I find this interesting. And your brother too. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is? Why are you so interested in the world of crime and in fictionalizing these people? Um, well, you know, I have a, I sort of have a shifting view about crime fiction. Um, but the the easiest thing is that I feel like crime itself is a mirror to society. That what crime fiction shows is the undercurrent of what's going on in the real world. Um, you know, the the cycles of people going to prison for buying drugs. Well, and then you follow that money. That money goes to the, 
the gangster on the street corner who sells the crack, uh, the gangster on the street corner who sells the crack kicks that money up to the head of the street gang. The head of the street gang kicks that money up to um, the CIA. The CIA, or what, you know, <laughs> that, that would be the terrible conspiracy theory. You know, follow that money, and it ends up in the hands of the person who is harvesting the cocaine um, somewhere, you know, in Mexico or wherever it might be. So uh, there's the, the societal point of view. But I also feel like, you know, I, I typically write about the bad guys. Um, I don't always, I don't typically write about someone who is wholly good. But I, I'm, I'm interested in that moment where someone decides killing somebody is the thing they need to do. Like, what's the what's the point at which you decide to take another life? How bad is something that you make that decision? I understand, you know, people robbing liquor stores or whatever. They need money. Well, they need money for drugs usually. You know, that's that's the, the easiest thing. Very rarely is someone knocking over a liquor store or robbing a bank because they just want the cash. They they're feeding an addiction typically. So there's that sort of general interest, but you know. My brother, Lee, when I was a little kid, he left me with a bag of crime novels. When he went to college, like, you know, John McDonald and Ross, Ross McDonald and Lawrence Block and Elmore Leonard and Donald Westlake and Robert B. Parker's Spencer novels, all these things. And I devoured them. And as a kid, what I really loved about crime fiction was that eventually it set order to chaos. And as a kid in a in a difficult family situation, I found that extraordinarily appealing. Sure. That someone could fix the mess. Um, because the mess that was in my own life, I, 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 ne I didn't see the light at the end of that tunnel. Um, I didn't see the light at the end of that tunnel, to be perfectly honest, until my both of my parents were dead, um, which was not until you know I was in my 30s and 40s. So I, I find a... I find a real comfort in crime fiction because someone sees an unjust situation and whether they're a good guy or a bad guy, they fix it. They solve it. So I find that really, really appealing. Um, but I also like the moral complexity. Um, you know, I, I wrote, I think, what you could generally call literary fiction um, earlier in my career. You know, I, I wrote two collections of short stories. I wrote a very, very sad novel about a man whose wife and child are dead and all this stuff. And, um, you know, <laughs> sold like hotcakes. Oh God. <laughs> we were, we, Brad and I talked about this off the air folks. There's nothing better than, than discussing something that we've already discussed, but it, I had this book that was super sad and lost some very nice awards that no one read and no one wanted to read <laughs> because who wants to read a book about the most depressing things that have ever happened to people? No one. Um, and I didn't want to write them anymore either. You know, I, I reached a point, you know, in my in my mid thirties, where I recognized that I, you know, I wasn't the best literary fiction writer in the world, and that I was writing stuff that I wouldn't read, and I should really start to write the things that I really enjoyed to to read. And what I've always really enjoyed to read is crime and noir fiction. That's a good lesson. Yeah, that's a good. I mean, what are you reading effortlessly? What are you drawn to? So many times we try to write outside of that mm -hmm. for some reason to, to some ideal or to some idea of what we think we're supposed to be doing. Like, you know, well, and, you know, part of it is also institutional. And I mean that by in the university model, which is that if if someone goes to get a graduate degree in creative writing, an MFA, 
in the majority of the situations, if you go into one of these MFA programs and you say, I'm writing a crime novel or I'm writing a fantasy novel, number one, they won't accept you. And number two, they don't know how to teach you. And I find that to be bullshit. You know, when, when I went and got my MFA, I'd already published, I don't know, six books or something at the time. And I was writing a crime novel under contract. And when I told my professor, who I will keep nameless so as not to disparage their lives, um, <laughs> that I was writing a crime novel, the professor said, well, you can't write a crime novel here. I don't know how to critique it. And I said, well, you can call it whatever you want to call it. Um, they've already paid me for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to write a crime novel. And you know, you can figure out how to critique it. As at your own speed, um, which didn't make me particularly popular, I think, as a as a grad student. Um, but you know, I, I think the institutional model that the only sort of good literature that you can teach is literary fiction is just a dreadful, awful bias created by old white guys that started these programs um, who had only ever read, um, you know, Middlemarch. Well, you know what. If someone wants to write a fantasy novel or they want to write a crime novel or they want to write an erotic romance while getting their graduate degree in creative writing, who am I to say you, what you can't write? You know, right. um, Write what makes you happy. Write what gives you enjoyment. Because God knows I spent enough time writing stuff that didn't give me enjoyment and made me terribly depressed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good lesson. You know, I'm glad to hear it because I'm like, I, I feel like with this last book that I wrote, I was telling you about it. It's like... It was sad for me. I'm glad I did it. Mm -hmm. But I, I totally understand why anybody who read it was like, <laughs> right? <laughs> Makes sense. I'm like, yeah, me too. You yeah. Know? But <laughs> as a personal exercise, I don't regret it. But right. as a, you know, if you're out there publishing, trying to reach an audience, I mean, you got to be real at some point. And right. crime, crime fiction, do you find it, that there's a bigger readership? I mean, do you, is it working? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's working for me. Um, and, you know, you look at the LA Times or New York Times bestseller list and, you know, of the top 10 bestselling books at any given time, five of them are a James Patterson novel. And then three of them are that Jojo Moyes person who writes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know who she is, but yeah. apparently she's very popular. Yeah. Um, I, I saw a movie adaptation of one of them and it had Khaleesi from Game of Thrones. And it's like, Khaleesi, no, which is what that <laughs> one guy always says to her. Um but I didn't watch the rest of it. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the vast majority of the best-selling books in America are crime novels, thrillers, and, and romance novels. And then there's always that, you know, there's one or two books in the literary realm that end up striking the fancy of uh, a vast readership at any given time. And, you know, those usually crack, you know, crack the list as well. Isn't that weird? Like from a literary, because uh, a lot of the writers I talk to write literary fiction or literary nonfiction. And... I'm always, I will forever be fascinated by, because there's only space for a couple, mm -hmm. just like you said, every year, a small handful of these right. books break through and really resonate. And it's always like, why? Yeah. Why that one? Um, I mean, sometimes it's obvious because something, you know, is in the zeitgeist and becomes important. I, like, I remember the year that the, the corrections was that one literary book, um, and maybe that was helped along by by Oprah or whatever, or the controversy surrounding it. But it, I don't, in my view, it doesn't end up being a book that has meant anything to me subsequently. Not that a book has to always mean something to you, but then I think about a book like Atonement by Ian McEwan, and that is a book I think about constantly. 
Um, Why? Because of the nature of a lie. Um, that the center of the book is about uh, Bryony telling a lie, and that affects everybody's lives um, throughout the the entire book. But it's also about the nature of conflict and the nature of war um, and what it means to be a part of a complex family of real people that aren't necessarily very stylized. And, you know, I, I think it's an amazing book. And it, I think it came out maybe a year after the corrections, if, if I'm remembering correctly. And in my mind, they're linked together because when I think about the corrections, I think about it being sort of stylized, you know, human American life. And, oh, these are the terrible problems that people have. And then I think about atonement and I think these are lives that are profound and reach into history and matter beyond just the page. So it, it could just be, you know, a, my own personal bias into what I like when I read literary fiction, but the, both of those books ended up becoming larger than just your regular, you know, sad book of literary fiction at any given time. But then remember the year that like lovely bones was the thing. Yeah. And no one could have predicted a murder novel narrated by a dead girl would be the thing. That's it. But I mean, it was the thing for some reason. Yeah. And if you if you talk about it now, it sounds like a book that um, you'd make fun of for being one of those YA books that adults glom onto. Oh, a little girl named Salmon is murdered, and she narrates the book from her ghost world. Was that an Oprah book too? No, I think it, I think it was a like a Today Show pick or something like okay. that. I loved it. I absolutely loved that book. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. Yeah, loved it. Um, but you know, I, I'm I'm also interested in how books that we consider to be literary fiction, some of the classics, are at their core genre fiction. So I think about a book like The Great Gatsby, which is a classic noir when you think about it. You know, there's a there's a dupe in Nick Carraway. There's a uh, a guy under the sway of a gangster who's changed his identity in Jay Gatsby. There's a femme fatale. Um, and then there's a, you know, the femme fatale's scary husband. There's a murder. I mean, it ends with someone dead in a pool. Or To Kill a Mockingbird. You know, there's no... There's no John Grisham without To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, That's a very good point. So I think about these things, and I think about the the biases, like I said before, institutionally against genre fiction. Um, but name me, a, you know, the the list of 100 of the greatest novels, and how many of them don't have someone with a gun in them? Hmm. I don't know that answer. I'm sure someone will send me an email. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, in American fiction, lots yeah. of guns. A lot of guns, yeah. A lot of guns, a lot of bad people, a lot of fake identities. Um, and, you know, I, I think that's actually, I mean, this is a thing, obviously, I've, I've touched on in my career a lot. You know, I've written uh, 13 books, 14 books, something like that. And I think the majority of them have been about a person struggling with the, their identity, about who they are on the inside versus who they are on the outside. And I think that is the american problem um you know go west and recreate yourself well you can you can recreate yourself on the outside but there's still that thing on the inside that that's driving you to to have that desire to recreate yourself right. what makes someone want to recreate themselves what are they running from you know are you know is a stranger coming to town you know what, what's happening um and so all of these things i think play into your original question which is why crime fiction and i think that Crime fiction is a uniquely American precept, and it it's that 
getting away with it. It's the getting away with it. That's the American dream is to get away with it. We love winners. We love winners. It doesn't even matter how they won. We're, and so much winning lately. So much. <laughs> I mean, right? Like there Tired is, of it. Yeah, but here's the thing. There is like a, you know, it's easy to say that it's all like it's an idiot and then a bunch of Fredos. But there is a dark brilliance in some ways to Trump. Like in, in ter- at least in, yeah. terms, at least in terms of in terms of his intuitive sense of uh, how to play the media, mm-hmm. how to play people, um, like what, like I guess like what an audience likes. He knows mm-hmm. how to play to an audience and to get a reaction. And right. I don't know. Not everybody has that. So. No, he's the he's the Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> he's the guy in the glass shirt singing. Um, you know, forever in blue jeans <laughs> to the world, <laughs> except he's evil except he's, and highly toxic, <laughs> and highly and toxic, narcissistic, and probably is directly responsible for a weight gain personally of 15 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so, and like this, like one of the questions that came to mind as I was listening to you talk, uh, you know, over the past hour is like, eventually there are going to be lots of books written about this. Oh God, yes. And it seems like. Because I think of like the like uh, the rise and fall of the Third Reich. I think of the Robert Caro's LBJ books. Mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be. It's not going to just be one book. No, and it's like even even by one author. Like I could see this being. A, you have to almost do a series. Mm-hmm. I've been watching um, the Vietnam documentary series yeah. on PBS, which is. Uh, I think it's 97 hours long. Yeah. Um, last Sunday, I watched like eight hours of it. And um, I was so frustrated and angry about that. But this is the wonderful thing and the hopeful thing is that smart people are still alive today and are watching things. And they're trying to keep America from descending into the morass that we had in Vietnam. Um somehow, I don't know how, in the last nine months, we have avoided actually getting into a war. <laughs> Just knocking on wood. Yeah, I don't know how, but can you imagine, I mean, other than the existing wars we have in Afghanistan and uh, the covert operations we have all over the world, um, but that's the, the watching of, of, of uh, this Vietnam documentary and learning more about the way LBJ and Nixon were operating. And those were smart, savvy politicians. Right. That's what's terrifying. That's what's terrifying. Because there there is no smart, savvy politician in that room. Or, or like, uh, you know, JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm, yeah. You know, like, it's like, what? who's the JFK? There's not one. I'm telling you, Brad, it's a room full of Fredos. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Gangster Nation. Yes, sir. Are you and like the, I guess the, you know, the series or you say trilogy quartet, mm-hmm. whatever, but it, you're adapting for television. Are you involved in the adaptation or you, did, no. you just, you just pushed it to them? I, I am more than happy to let the professionals handle that stuff. You, you know, the, the, the original short story that I wrote, so I wrote a short story called Mitzvah that appeared in my book, Other Resort Cities in 2009. And it was about this character, about the Rabbi David Cohen, South Cupertino, it was about his last day on the job. And that short story was optioned by the folks uh, who at the time were making Justified, uh, the wonderful folks at Timberman, Timberman Beverly. And then CBS actually exercised their option. They bought the whole thing out. And we were right there 
we were like they were gonna make a pilot right then and i thought oh man this is this is it and this is right when gangsterland came out um in 2014 and it got very close and then didn't happen which you know these things occur but they they weren't going to use anything from gangsterland they just owned the short story um so basically they owned the idea of a chicago hitman pretending to be a rabbi but these folks um that make peaky blinders who um who have optioned it now you know they own the books and they want to make the books into a series and i have a tremendous amount of faith in them because i'm a huge peaky blinders fan when when my agents said here are the people that are interested in it um and there's there's always been more more than one person interested in it, which has been nice um what do you think of this and i was like those are the people that make Peaky Blinders. And my voice went up like 30 octaves. It's like, Tom Hardy plays a Jew, gangster on Peaky Blinders. He can naturally be in this room as well. Tom Hardy. And like my wife walked into the room and looked at me like, are you, are you having a stroke or something? <laughs> I'm fine. So I have a lot of faith in them. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm contractually a consultant and all of those sorts of good things that, that happen in these TV contracts, but man, I, I don't want to wreck it with my inability to screenwrite. <laughs> well, and you've got, you've got enough going on. You're doing, uh, you know, you're doing your academic thing. You're writing your books. Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to do that. And you know, if nothing happens, um, and the odds are nothing will happen. Um, if nothing happens, I'm still going to write these books. Is it for Netflix that they would be? Uh, we don't know where it's going to be. Oh, okay. Yet. Um, and I'm also going to need you to sign a non-disclosure agreement, Brad. Okay. Uh, <laughs> who knows where it will be at this point? Um, we're hoping for good news on that soon. But, you know, I'm going to keep writing the books. And I, people always ask me, oh, if you get a, if someone makes a TV show out of your books, would you quit your job running this graduate school? And my answer is always the same thing, which is that I, I don't have children. Um, what I have is a great lineage of graduate students who have come out of my program and have gone on to great and profound success. And that is apart from my own family, the thing that gives me the most joy and pride as a human being. Um, I started this grad. So I, I direct the graduate school, the low residency, uh, MFA in creative writing, writing for the performing arts at UC Riverside. Um, I started it 10 years ago and man, I just, love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, because I get to teach creative writing in the way that hopefully is not an entirely esoteric pursuit. You know, that's preparing people to actually get their stuff published, putting people in front of the gatekeepers as it were, but also saying, Hey, look, here's the business side of things. You know, here's your novel. Here's why your novel is probably an indie novel. Here's why your novel is probably, you know, a big six novel, or here's why your TV show can't get made, or here's why your movie can get made. Um, these are the sorts of real world conversations that we have. And man, I just feel like if more graduate schools did that, I'd be out of business. But, um, <laughs> as long as I'm the one doing it, I'm, it, it makes me so happy and fills me with you know so much gratitude that people entrust me with um this small part of their careers well it's great talking with you it's great talking to you we should do it every week yeah <laughs> what are you doing next week um, maybe another nazi photo will show up in my facebook feed <laughs> we can chat about it uh congratulations uh, i wish you the best of luck and i uh, hope we see each other again soon i mean you, you live right down the road we should i'm telling you brad I could, this room, listeners, let me just tell you, the room where Brad 
records he has a vast studio in the middle of los angeles but i could live in the studio it's filled there's there's an ice cream parlor inside of here <laughs> there's a full craft services and a very nice sofa <laughs> all right todd thanks for divulging all of my secrets <laughs> happy to do it all right guys there you go that is todd goldberg his new novel is called gangster nation it's out there now from counterpoint press you can find him on the internet at toddgoldberg.com he's on twitter his handle is at todd goldberg uh, is he on Instagram? Is he on Facebook? I don't know. I leave that to you. Track him down. Google him. Todd Goldberg, Gangster Nation. Go get it. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. The uh, website for Kill Rockstars is killrockstars.com. Go there and peruse their offerings. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com letters at otherppl.com if you would like to support this program go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod show some support don't forget about the app the app is uh, free the other people with Brad List the app available free of charge wherever you get your apps it's a good way to listen so wasn't Todd unusually lucid I felt like he was unusually lucid and uh, deeply informed on the issues here. I kind of wanted him to run for office at the end of that conversation. And I, I say that in uh, an earnest way, not in like, a, you know, sometimes you tell people they're politicians. It's like a, in the pejorative, but like, I really believe like we need good citizens at the very least. Not that he's going to run for office, but you know what I'm saying? Like if we just seed the field to the skeevy politicians, then that's who we're going to get. We need good people to get out there and participate. And he seems to be participating actively, which I admire. And it makes me glad, frankly, a little relieved. Like, okay, good. We need people out there like that holding the line, if that makes any sense. Makes me want to be like that, too. Got to be better. Raise my game. Got to elevate my game. My citizenship game. It's a big soup. And I mean, you know, there are people, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about politics. I don't want to hear about this. Okay, then fine. Turn it off. No one's stopping you. Flip the switch. I don't know. I don't know how else to be. And uh, I certainly don't think that I have like exclusive rights to the truth. But I mean, we all have to have this conversation. We need to have these conversations. That's the problem. And yet they have to be productive. They have to be constructive. Can't just be like shouting over one another, blathering. I get it. I think I get it. You know, we got to try to find a way somewhere. <laughs>